may be seated. We have many visitors with us today. I'm thankful that you're here. Thank you for coming. I know many of you are traveling from out of town and you know, see family members that I haven't seen in a while and thankful that you are here. Great time of the year to celebrate with your family, spend time together worshiping our King. Uh, we have a uh, announcement also of a new birth that happened. Uh, Ethan Edwards Jackson was born this week, uh, Scott and Leah's baby, so we have babies coming uh, weekly now, it seems like. <laughs> Uh, very thankful that uh, uh, they are—they have a healthy baby boy, so pray for them. We are going to be talking today about the implications of the Incarnation. I know big words, but uh, ultimately what it means is, is the impact of God becoming a man. That would be another way of saying that, the impact of God becoming a man. We're going to be in selected passages today, and I'm doing something a little different than I've ever done. Don't stone me. I am actually not doing an, a, a one specific passage. I'm going to try a topical message. Oh, no. Um, don't tell any of my professors. No. Hey, pa- Dr., uh, Dr. MacArthur does it. I've seen on his site, he has that, you know, it says selected scriptures. I just wanted to put that up there one time, selected scriptures, so that it's there. Um, so we're going to be looking at the incarnation today. Recently, Franklin Graham came out with a statement defending his ministry's commitment to unity between Mormons and evangelical Christianity. Franklin Graham stated this, quote, I was shocked that we even had that Mormons were a cult on our website. Franklin said, we're calling people names. If I want to win people to Christ, how can I call them names? So we just took it off. Franklin implied that he made the final decision in the matter. And it's not, he quote, again he says, it's not going to come back because I don't want to be involved in calling a person a name. Folks, there's a huge flaw in this. If a person says they believe in Jesus, but their Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible, then they are literally headed in the wrong direction. And they need to be lovingly confronted with gentleness and grace. Otherwise, they will continue to be deceived over their identity of Jesus. Franklin's point is is that calling a person a name will alienate them from dialogue with other Mormons. The problem with this way of thinking is that confrontation with the truth is really the only way a person is saved. If we never address a person's idol, they will never turn from it and embrace God. Ladies and gentlemen, we must confront people with truth. God did it. All of his prophets did it. 
The Bible has done it numerous times, over and over and over. The Apostle John confronts those with a wrong view of the Father and the Son, and he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. So now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, there were some false teachers that went out of their church and that exposed them to be false teachers. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge, John says. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son. No one that denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Real simple. John is basically saying, look, if you have a wrong view of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you have a wrong view of God, the triune God, you're not of the truth. He calls them the Antichrist. Okay, so maybe we don't put cult, but we put Antichrist. The Apostle John calls people who have a wrong view of God and his son, Antichrist. Standing for the truth is the best thing we can do for God's own sheep. We need to do this. This thinking of not wanting to offend anyone or an unbeliever's feelings over the protection of the believer's own discipleships, discipleship is wrong. Let me explain what I mean by this. To call somebody out for wrong teaching is a good thing, especially if you're talking about the deity of Christ. Because it protects the sheep in the body. That's what we're supposed to do. Otherwise, we're going to have people that are completely confused about who God is. And sheep will wander off. On top of this, by avoiding the weaknesses of this difference, we are in effect belittling and blaspheming our God. We are literally saying, okay, we're kind of similar. We don't compromise the glory of our God for the sake of ministries or of missions. Do you hear me? Now think what I'm saying here. In other words, I don't compromise doctrine so that I can be a better witness to other people. That makes it backwards. That is to actually say, God, your glory is not that important. Yes, we desire to seek and save that which is lost, but not at the expense of our Lord's glory. We can't do that. Can you imagine, just for a second, Moses walks down the mountain and the children of Israel are worshiping the golden calf. And Moses looks at them and says to himself, Wow, I don't want to offend them. 
So I'm not going to say they are idolaters. Instead, he says, I want to bond with you. Let us sit down and have a dialogue and see if we can find some common ground. I will bring a representative from Yahweh and you bring a representative from the golden calf. Maybe we can find some common ground. As a matter of fact, let's have the calf on stage with me. And as I sacrifice to God Almighty, we'll have the calf sitting there watching. Maybe we'll even make a little sacrifice for him. Maybe even one of your priests of the golden calf can stand up here with me and, hey, why don't we let him lead in prayer? Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that is what they're saying. Obviously, Moses didn't do that. God actually burned with anger over them making a golden calf. And when Moses threw down the the Ten Commandments and broke the stone tablets, God never rebuked Moses for his anger there. There is no common ground, ladies and gentlemen, with cults. And for us to say there is is an offense to God who bought us and delivered us from bondage. Now, do we yell and scream at our Mormon neighbors? No. May it never be. When they walk out their door, we don't say, Cult member! You're going to hell! But we should also never allow them to think we serve the same God and that there's some common ground between us. Listen, we live in a day and time when if we confront someone with the truth, we are considered evil or mean or harsh. Just by saying we believe different is considered intolerant and evil. This is wrong. In fact, we lovingly and gently confront people all the time with wrong worldviews. We are, in fact, being very loving to people to do that. We are on live stream right now, and there is a possibility that my aunt and uncle, who are Mormons, who are serving on their quote-unquote mission field, are watching this. I love them. I pray that they see that the God that they serve is not the God of the Bible. I want them to know the truth. I do not think I'm better than them, but I want them to know the truth. We must confront, otherwise we are having people in burning houses and saying, I'm not going to warn them. By the way, If your life does not reflect a changed heart and a true commitment to Christ, then your message is often rejected as hypocritical. So a continual self-examination is necessary for all of us. And a continual life of repentance and dependence upon the Lord is a necessity of all, all the time for us. Mormons state their doctrinal statement that God and Jesus are two totally separate 
and distinct individual gods. They are both gods, is what they say. They deny that both are two persons of one triune God. They are polytheists, multiple gods, who believe that they are a god. One day they will become a god. You will too, if somebody baptizes themselves for you. In fact, they say the father was once a human like me and you who was raised from the dead and became God. They say the father was with a mother God and had Jesus and Satan and many other spiritual children. They literally claim Jesus has not always existed, but had a beginning like us. Thus, this is a quote, this is staggering, from one of their leaders, Bruce McConkie author of salvation page 67 listen to this thus when the father presented his own plan and pre-existent counsel he asked for volunteers from whom he could choose a redeemer to be born into mortality as the son of god lucifer satan offered to become the son of god on condition that the terms of the father's plan were modified to deny men their agency, their free will, and to heed inordinate reward upon the one working out the redemption. Christ, on the other hand, quote Bruce, on the other hand, accepted the Father's plan in full, saying, quote, Father, they will be done, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. Our Lord was then foredained to a mission which in due course he fulfilled, which mission enabled him to make salvation available to all men. Ladies and gentlemen, that's backwards. Jesus is not Satan's brother. I'm sorry, he's not. And this is what they say. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Antichrist. The doctrine puts Jesus on the same level as Satan. This denies the doctrine of the Trinity. It's heresy. It is no different than elevating Mary to a co-redeemer as the Roman Catholics do. I'm sorry, but Mary is not my redeemer. Jesus is. And there's only one Redeemer. Him. Jesus Christ. But Mike, you're being so harsh. So unkind. Oh, this is the most loving thing I could say. If I did not say this, nobody would be confronted with the truth. And you might think that it's possible to be a little bit of that and a little bit of us. Don't work that way. The Church of the Latter-day Saints is a prime example of twisting biblical truth for the promotion of a religion that elevates humanity over the one true God. Some of you have asked me my view on Christmas. Today, I'm going to tell you why I think it's very important for us to redeem this holiday. 
The world has stolen the significance of the birth of Jesus, and I want to reclaim it. I want to make it clear that I am not saying embrace materialism or men in red suits. I am saying the heart of the message of Christmas is the doctrine of the incarnation. God became man. And this doctrine is under attack today in our society, so let's celebrate what it really means and stand up for what it really means. For if we don't, our own view and understanding of Christ will be disparaged and put down. I'm afraid we might miss a huge opportunity here if we make this an argument about whether we buy presents for each other or whether we should have Christmas trees. That isn't even the discussion. It shouldn't even be the discussion. Let's don't talk about that. Let's talk about what happened. God became man and was born. That's the issue. The doctrine of the incarnation is a hill to die on, ladies and gentlemen. The moment that I stop preaching that doctrine, fire me. Leave the church. We will stand on the identity of Christ and Grace Bible Church and our understanding and our commitment to the one true Jesus as revealed in the Bible. It's critical for a saving relationship with God. As Peter said in Acts 4.11, look there, Acts 4.11. He, Jesus, is who he's talking about in Acts 4.11 and 12. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. Okay, let's see how well y'all been listening for the last three weeks. Where's that from? Psalm. Close. A little higher. Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Peter got the message. I told you. He got the message. Is the stone which the builders rejected you, the builders. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. By the way, when he says there is no other name under heaven, uh, he does not mean just the name Jesus. By the way, that was in Greek. This is not just the name. It's the identity of the person who carries the name Jesus. Do you understand? It's all that he is and all that he's about. It's the Son of God. Anybody that does not trust and is committed to that person and work will not be saved. I'm convinced that I, for the first, you know, 18 to 20 years of my life, knew of a Jesus. And if you asked me if I believed in Jesus, I would have said, depending on what day it was, I believed in Jesus. But that Jesus was not the Jesus of the Bible. And I was not committed to him, the Jesus of the Bible. So I guess I would ask you this question as you celebrate Christmas this year. Are you committed to the Jesus of the Bible? 
Are you committed to the one that came and wrapped himself in flesh? Today we're going to cover some of these implications of God became man. By the way, this has absolutely nothing to do with who you should or should not have voted for. Did you hear that? This is about the Jesus of the Bible who must be your Savior and Lord or you will face God on Judgment Day. That's what it's about. Do you understand? You better make sure that the baby in the manger you worship this Christmas is the one of the Bible. Otherwise, you will face him one day on Judgment Day. Let's look at the implications. Five of them. And the reason why that should motivate us to worship the one true Jesus. First, God keeps his promises. Let's look, guys. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was plunged into a horrible condition. And all of humanity was condemned to death. This death was supposed both spiritual death and eventual physical death, right? Everybody knows this. The creation was also condemned at the curse, and all of creation groans with anticipation of its redemption. Through Adam, sin came into the world, and because of sin, death spread to all men. Everyone is born dead in sin, totally depraved and worthy of God's just judgment. But God had a divine and glorious plan. God allowed, or alluded to rather, his plan in Genesis 3.15. Look over there. Genesis 3.15. God said to Satan in Genesis 3.15, and he alluded to this coming one, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here God was pointing to a man who would come from woman that would eventually give Satan a death blow. In order for this to happen, it would have had, it would have had to be God himself to become a man. God would become a man in order to save a person or a people for himself. Then throughout thousands of years, over and over, the prophets continued to say, One is coming, one is coming, one is coming. God made promises after promises after promises that a Savior would come. Look over at Galatians chapter 4. Paul talks about Jesus. Paul explains what Jesus fulfilled. In Galatians chapter 4 it says, Paul says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is, Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Then in Acts 13.22, look there. Acts 13.22. And after he, that is God, had removed him, that is Saul... He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he, God, also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
God keeps his promises. Why is that important? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but that is crucial. If God does not keep his word, we're in trouble. Everything God said would happen, happened exactly like he said it would happen. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is 700 years before Jesus comes. God made a promise that it was going to happen, and what happened? It took place. How about Micah 5.2? Roughly 500 years before. But as you, as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is a promise. God's coming. The God-man, the Messiah, Emmanuel, is coming. When Jesus arrived, God was shown to be trustworthy. God keeps his promises. That's what the incarnation says. It says, God keeps his promises. When Jesus was born, everybody says, God is trustworthy. All believers. God said a Messiah would come, and he did. God said a Messiah would come, born of a woman, and he did. God said the Messiah would come as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he did. God said he would come as a descendant of Judah, one of the tribes, and he did. God said Messiah would, come, would be a descendant of King David, and he was. God said the Messiah would be born of a virgin, and be called Emmanuel. And he was. And he did. God said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he was born in Bethlehem. Everything God said would happen, happened when Jesus arrived. God is a promise-keeping, trustworthy God. So as we celebrate Christmas this year, remember, we can trust God. He keeps his promises. This should call all of us to study the promises of God so we can know what he's promised for us, right? And rely on him even more. For the believer, it says this, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise I'm going to hold on to as I stumble and bumble along. How about you? God keeps his promises. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Oh boy, I like that promise, don't you? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sure am thankful of that one. I'll keep that promise. We always keep him because he's a trustworthy God. The Lord Jesus will return to us one day. How do I know? Because he promised he would. He's coming back. By the way, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's another promise for you to remember. That doesn't mean go out and look for a persecution. It just means if you live for God, it could happen. It will happen. 
It is important to remember that God keeps his promises even when we don't feel it. Our emotions and our circumstances are not bigger than the trustworthiness of God. Our own interpretation of our circumstances don't trump the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. God will keep his promises even if we cannot see how. Do you understand? Don't base, don't base your life on your emotions or how things are working out, your circumstances. Base your decisions and your trust in the trustworthiness of God. That's what we base our lives on, our lives on. So the first implication of the incarnation is, is that God keeps his promises. Second, God revealed himself in Christ. Now, this is startling news. For thousands of years, God revealed himself to prophets. These prophets were accurate. However, they were not God incarnate. They were men who God was working through. As the author of Hebrews stated in our passage, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Often, when the Lord gave people a further glimpse of himself, it was brief and for only one or two and often it was bailed like in Exodus 33 remember when in Exodus 34 when God passes by in front of Moses he says I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand so you cannot see in Exodus 33 God said this in Exodus 33 20 but God said you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live so for years and years and years God in a sense, veiled himself from the world. He gave the law, told him what his standard was like, said he was coming, but you didn't see him. But when Jesus showed up, humanity got a glimpse of the incarnate God. It's a staggering thought. So God condescended to reveal himself by becoming a man and thus revealing himself to the world. Humanity can know God through studying Jesus Christ. That's great news. Oh, folks, don't you see why all these cults and stuff will try to get you off track of knowing who Jesus is? Think about this. If you can, if you can destroy who Jesus is, his person and identity, if you can destroy that, what are you going to do? You're going to destroy their view of God. Because he's God incarnate. He's the revealer of God, as our passage in Hebrews says. In John 1, it, this is one of the most awesome verses in all the Bible. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the one of a kind God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. How many of you want to know who God is? Study Jesus. Jesus has been the exposition, the exegesis of God. He reveals God to us. Man, I think that's what our goal should be as a church, don't you? I think it should be that aim every year. You ready? Let's know Christ more. <laughs> Pursue knowing Christ. I'm convinced if we would all just have this kind of mindset that I'm going to pursue Jesus and know him more, if that was just our focus all the time, we would become holier people. 
The problem is not clean myself up. It's the problem of my pursuits. What I pursue. If I pursue Christ, I will become holy. If I pursue knowing Christ, I will look holy. My problem is, is my pursuits. What I pursue, what I seek, what I desire. It's very simple. Hebrews 1 says, In these last days God spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through Him also He made the world. And He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Study Christ! That's what the author of Hebrews is saying, by the way. Christ is much better. Christ is much better. Study Christ. We can know God now, ladies and gentlemen, because of the incarnation. We can know him. God has revealed himself to us in Christ. God has explained himself to us in Christ. Jesus has not only revealed God... He's made it possible for our wicked hearts to enjoy God now. That's a staggering thought. Because of the work of Christ, we can now delight in Christ and enjoy Him. So let's make it our primary goal this year, our aim as a church, to know Christ more. Please, can you imagine a church full of people that are pursuing to know Christ? That's going to be a church that is a light in this world. Notice it's just like what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of many things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. I want to know Christ more. By the way, if you want to know Christ more, then you probably want the fellowship of his suffering so you can know him more. So everybody still wants to know Christ, right? What if 2013 means you suffer a little? I still want it because I want Christ. I want to know him. Do you? So we've seen the implication of the incarnation is God keeps his promises and God has revealed himself in Christ. Third, we see God humbly became man. This is staggering. I am still blown away by this. One of you posted a a picture of an embryo on on Facebook and, and it had a little caption underneath it about this is what Jesus did, was at one point. It's just a staggering thought. That the God of the universe, the one that created it all, became the smallest little beginning. He was a man. He lived the entire life as a man. That's a staggering thought. 
just meditate on that the rest of the week. That should make you go, wow. I mean, think about it for a second, ladies and gentlemen. Think about this. God became that. Again, John 1, 1 states, in the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word, by the way? Everybody knows this? Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was... Any questions? No, it's very clear. Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus is described by John in John 1, 1 and 2 as God, existing forever in eternity. He has no beginning. He was always there. He already existed. The way this is worded is literally he was in existence in the beginning. He already existed in the beginning. So Jesus is described as God, a member of the Trinity. And look at verse 14, staggering words. And the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only one of a kind from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the incarnation is one of the most amazing aspects of our great God and Savior. Can you believe this? Think about this. One of the members of the Godhead who made the world became man. Again, if we knew the kind of authority and power and glory he set aside to humbly become a man, it's a, it's a staggering thought. The role of the suffering, suffering servant is mind-blowing. Oh, the implications for this are amazing. Look over at Philippians 2. Actually, Ronaldo, you brought this passage up. Philippians 2. Good passage. In his sermon this morning. In Philippians 2.5 it says, Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation. God became man. The humility of our Savior is one of the most convicting things in the entire Bible for me to men meditate on. I don't think there's anything more convicting except the cross. <laughs> I mean, those two things. We are so prone, ladies and gentlemen, to elevate ourselves and think we're worthy of respect and honor. We are so prone to consider our opinion and our benefit above others, aren't we? But notice how we should be responding in light of this glorious gospel. Look at the beginning of verse 5. If you understand the incarnation, if you get the incarnation, you ready? This is what you're required to do. Have this attitude yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. God became man. That's humility above humility, isn't it? He became the smallest of little embryos. Paul had just developed what that looked like in us. So let's make this our second goal. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, 
but also for the interest of others. Okay, listen closely. Pay attention, focus. If you get the incarnation, if you get the incarnation, it should have a change in the way you behave towards one another. If you really understand it, what are you going to do? You're going to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. You're going to regard one another as more important than yourself. That's the attitude Christ had. That's the attitude we must have. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Oh, folks, this is a church that's fixed on Christ and thinking about Christ will be this way. It's not confusing. So, am I going to fight for the incarnation? Yes, I'm going to fight for the incarnation. Why? Because we all need to step back and think about what he did. Because if we think on what he did, then we might live different and honor Christ. Now, I admit, what has our world done with Christmas and the incarnation? It has totally skewed it. Totally made it about us. Isn't that what the world does with anything? <laughs> it makes it all about the human. <laughs> Let's make it all about the kids. Christmas is all about the children, isn't it? No, it's not all about the children. It's about one child. Christ, the God-man who came to earth. That's what it's about. One thing. Now, does that mean you don't give gifts on Christmas? Well, I would argue that it would actually be a way of you reflecting that you know that truth. Really? Do nothing from selfishness of, or empty conceit, but re, with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. If we're going to give a gift, if we point to the truth, the giver, the great give, gift giver, and God himself, that's a good thing. So don't throw the baby out without, with the bathwater. Fourth, God provided righteousness in Christ. Again, a staggering thought. Luke 1.35 says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. As soon as Jesus was miraculously placed in the womb, perfect righteousness came into the world. In the exact moment Jesus was born, holiness was revealed to the world in human form. Because Jesus is both God and man. 100% God and 100% man. He's both. In Luke 1.35, as we read here, he's called the holy offspring. Jesus was sinless his entire life. I, I know, this is one of those that I, I like to go over with the kids regularly. We were talking about it in our devotions this week leading up to, uh, we have this thing called the Jesse tree. The Jesse tree is, uh, you know, from the root of Jesse will come a Messiah. And we talk about all month long the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming, the Messiah coming. And we point to these prophecies the whole time. We were talking about how Jesus from the very beginning 
was holy and perfect and righteous. And he always obeyed Mary and Joseph. Unless they told him to sin. And then he wouldn't do that. But he, he obeyed them perfectly. Perfect righteousness. And I said to him, I said, you know, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Nuh-uh. Yeah, he did. He had brothers and sisters. And you know what? Whenever they returned, when they, whenever they showed any evil to him, you know what he did? He never returned revile for revile. He was always kind to them. Every second of the day. Can you imagine how convicting it would be living with Jesus? I mean, I can't even imagine being, can you imagine poor Mary and Joseph? Why are you more like him? Why aren't I like him? <laughs> that would be a bar to try to live up to, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Even the parents would have been humbled by him. Everything he did was for the glory of God. Everything, every moment of his life, his entire life. Because he never sinned, not one time. Never, not once. Righteousness came into the world. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 says this. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Wow. Not even a bad word ever came from his mouth. No lying, deception. And if you know anything about your heart, you are totally opposite of that, apart from Christ. His entire life, not even any deceit was found in his mouth. None. He was truth incarnate. Staggering. 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why is that important? Why do we need an advocate? A righteous advocate. The answer is because we're sinners. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me closely. Did you know that God requires for you to be 100% righteous all the time? The standard for God, his standard, is righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Okay, that's what he requires. How many of you have accomplished that? None of you. <laughs> but that's what he requires. Not just that you're sin, you, you don't sin anymore. You also have to be righteous in every word, every thought, every imagination that comes to your head and you act on or think on or meditate on has to be perfect righteousness all the time. That's what's required. That's why he says, if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you've already committed murder. His point is, you can't even look at somebody with anger and hatred towards them. Not even have that thought. That is what's required of you. How many of you have accomplished that? Then you're thankful for the incarnation. You know why? Because if that's required by God, perfect righteousness, you need somebody to be your advocate. 
You need somebody that will not only take your punishment that you deserve, you also need all of his righteousness because you haven't been righteous. Now, I want you to think about this. If you commit to Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, all of the obedience of the Savior to his parents, all the way from the smallest spot to the last dying moment, is credited to your account. That's a staggering thought. Do you understand what good news that is for our kids? <laughs> kids, we got the best Christmas present in the world today. Not only did God come to die for man and our sin, he also came to provide all of the righteousness that you require. All of it. That's a gift. That's an excessive gift. Can you believe it? When the father looks at his children, he sees his son's righteousness credited to our account. And all of our sins are paid for. He arrived on the world and showed his glory. You wonder why the angels rejoice? <laughs> They're like, wow! <laughs> wow! God is doing something here that's staggering. Do you understand? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. Not just as our sin paid for, but all of his righteousness is also credited to our account. All of our sin goes to him. He takes the punishment and we get all of his righteousness. Wow. Is that a reason to worship the king this Christmas? Sure am glad he came, aren't you? Romans 5.19 says, For as through, as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. That's good old Adam. That's what he brought us for Christmas. What a gift. Dead in our sins. Deserving judgment and hell. What did Christ bring us? Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. If you have committed to Christ, you've turned and trusted in him, you are forgiven and at peace with God. That's why our last point, God provided peace with, in Christ. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You know, it's very interesting in this. There's the already and not yet in this, isn't it? The already is, is for all of us that have trusted in Christ, we are at peace with God. He is our Prince of Peace. But there's a not yet, because obviously there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I see, I see this as the end. This is the end, too, where peace will reign on this world, in this world. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we have peace with God through Christ. As Romans 5, 1 and 11 says, Therefore, having been declared right with God by faith, or justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer God's enemy because of what Christ did. So ladies and gentlemen, if there was ever a time I would, I can say an amen to a worship service, it was Luke chapter 2. Turn there and we'll close there. Y'all know the story. By the way, even in our song today, the kings did not show up at the manger. The manger is a feeding trough. I always like to correct that every Christmas. One day we'll make sure that we don't allude to that wrong. That's why, you know, when you put your manger scene, you should put the kings on the other side of the room. But the shepherds were there that first night. And they went because the angels told them to go. And can you imagine what it was like when the multitude of the angels began to sing and say this? And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger, a feeding trough. And suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incarnation. We thank you for sending your son. Lord, we ask for you to protect us. Help us to stay faithful and stand true to your word and your truth. Help us, Father, to, to die on the hill of your son's identity. If persecution happens, Lord, let it be over Christ, his person and work, not over a Christmas tree. Oh, God, please help us to exalt your son's name all year long. And may we exalt the only true king, the Prince of Peace. The Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand.